Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing on in our series on biblical worldview with James Jordan, and here he's going to be talking about sacraments and miracles. Before we jump into the episode, though, we have a brief word from Peter Lightheart to invite you to join us to become a Theopolis partner and donor and help us continue our work. The church and the world need Theopolis now more than ever. The last two years have been years of upheaval. The COVID pandemic and the aftermath and the response of the pandemic have overturned many of our assumptions about how our world works. There's confusion over the last few years about populism and nationalism. Churches are divided about the pandemic. Churches are divided about the political situation. And there's increasing pressure on Christians to conform to the anti-Christian cultural norms that surround us. It feels like the world is cracking apart. The world is going crazy and we're surrounded by fear and despair and pessimism. Theopolis has a clear vision for the present and for the future. We want to train the sons of Issachar who know the times and know what should be done. The key to the future is strong, vibrant churches. Churches that provide family structures for the members of the churches. Churches that are like the city of God. Churches that are the nation, the people of God. Churches that are deeply rooted in scripture in all its beauty and depth and power. Churches that worship with vigor and joy, singing psalms and gathering around the Lord's table. Churches that carry out the mission of the church with service and witness and cultural transformation. Above all, Theopolis has a hopeful vision. The church is the light of the world, reflecting the light of Jesus, and the light overcomes the darkness. The church is the spring of living water that refreshes the dry land and turns the salt water fresh. The church is the body of Christ, who is the triumphant Savior. Theopolis doesn't offer a program or an agenda for surviving the times, but for victory in the midst of challenging times. Please support us, because the church and the world need Theopolis now more than ever. And if you'd like to become a partner with us, we do have a link down there in the show notes, or you can go to theopolisinstitute.com and click on the give button. All right. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing sacraments and miracles. In our general series on Christian view of the world, And we will begin this morning a discussion of the sacraments. This isn't going to take forever on the sacraments, but uh, this is sort of an appendix to our consideration of liturgy and worship. And in order to lead into the sacraments, we need to talk about miracle and the doctrine of revelation. And so we'll be talking somewhat about how God reveals himself to us in the word. Maybe some of you in the front could share a little bit so that those in the back can have a copy. We'll be talking about revelation through God's Word and the ways that Word comes to us. 
And that will lead us to a consideration of what theologians call the visible or sensible words of God, the sacraments. Now, let me explain this chart to you, although some of what's written here we won't get to this week. There is, uh, I think we, we have to maintain, a kind of a bipolarity in the revelation of God. What I have down here is verbal revelation and sensible revelation. And these two things go together and are never really separated. And then we make a distinction between the general word of God over here on the left-hand side and the special word of God. The general word of God, generally speaking, is the cultural mandate. And as far as verbal revelation is concerned, it's the command to take dominion and rule the world. And then in order for man to do that, he has to be able to see. I mean, if God says, take dominion over the animals, he has to understand that those are animals. And so there's a revelation that God makes in the creation itself. And this is what we call providence. Providence has three parts, preservation, concurrence, and government. We'll get to that uh, in the lectures. Then uh, what we're more used to thinking about here is the special word of God, what I call the sabbatical mandate. And before the fall of man, that took this form here, the verbal form in Genesis 2, 9 to 17, where the two trees are marked out, the tree of knowledge and the tree of life. God says, don't eat of the tree of knowledge. It's implied that they're to eat of the special tree of life and uh, enter into his rest. There's a special kind of a faith attached there which is morally qualified in a particular kind of way. And then the sensible revelation or sensible sign or token that goes along with that are the two trees which are special signs. Now, after the fall, this sabbatical mandate to come to uh, eventual rest in God is reiterated on the foundation of the blood of Christ. And that's why all of the redemption in the Old Testament is tied to the Sabbath, and that's why when redemption is finished, the New Testament says the Sabbath is gone. Now, the, the need for a weekly day of rest isn't gone, the need for a weekly day of worship isn't gone, but the, in, in Christ, <clears throat> all these redemptive things that are tied to the Sabbath are finished in him. But we can say here, and we'll elaborate on this some, that after the fall, a redemption is attached to the sabbatical mandate, not the cultural mandate. We don't work our way to heaven. It's still by faith, still by making the right choice. There's still two trees out there, Satan's tree and God's tree. We still have to choose, and on the basis of the blood of Christ, we make the right choice. And here in the area of verbal revelation, we have the proclamation of the gospel. And the gospel is that God is just and the justifier of his people. Uh, the gospel is not God loves you. Uh, the gospel is although that's true in a general and special kind of a way, the gospel is actually has to do with God's justice, and so it entails a proclamation of both vengeance and salvation. And in the area of sensible revelation, special signs are always attached to this proclamation. In the Bible, you never have verbal proclamation without some type of sensible proclamation correlative to it, or what I have down is bipolarity. These things belong together miracles and sacraments. Now, I'm just going to go over this as a, as a preliminary, and we're going to expand on this in the next couple of weeks. Now, just to, so you'll know where we're going, look at the points that are to keep in mind. First, the special signs are never silent. That is, miracles, if a miracle occurs, well, you don't know what it is. It's a random act. Or if there's a sacrament, or if God sets up a memorial pillar, or any of the other special signs that you have in the Bible, they would be silent and we would have no understanding of them unless they're accompanied by verbal explanation. 
And so preaching or the word uh, verbal always goes along with the special signs. But on the other hand, and this is the point that's obscure in Protestantism today, verbal revelation in the Bible is never separated from a special sign. Now, you can just think about the Bible and you'll see it. If you read Deuteronomy 18, 21-22, you'll find that true prophets are always authenticated by special signs in the Old Covenant. Uh, B, even though God's word by itself is absolutely certain, he confirms it with an oath, which is again a special addition. Sometimes this is these signs and seals are said to be added to the word. It would be a little bit better to say that they're sort of a second witness, a different form of the word. I might just read to you here what Hebrews 6, 17, and 18 says. For men, in the same way God, desiring to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath in order that by two unchangeable things, that is, the word, the promise, and the oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie and we may have strong encouragement. Well, the question that comes is, if, if God says it, isn't it completely and absolutely true? Why should God need to add an oath? Well, that's the way it is. There is always the special sign, in this case an oath, added to the word itself. And I've gone on down here. When the word was preached to Adam, the sign was clothing with skins. I mean, there was something for Adam to look at, something for him to feel in connection with the preaching. Same with Noah. Noah was to look at the rainbow. When the word was preached to Abram, the sign was a sacrament of circumcision. The sign of sacrifice and sacrament was attached to the word throughout the Old Covenant. Other special forms of sensible revelation include, and these are things that you find in the Old Testament accompanying the word, always, miracles, memorial pillars and stones, all the washings for cleansing, all the sacrifices, the fulfillment of predictive prophecy, very important in the books of Kings. Such and such has happened in fulfillment of a prophecy made 500 years ago. Well, that is a special sign which accompanies the preaching of the word. In the era 30 to 33 A.D., the special sign was the person and miracles of Christ. People were to look to him, not only hear his word, but also see him. And after Pentecost, the special sign or miracle is the sacraments. Now, that's important for our worship. People wonder where miracles are today, and that's what we're going to lead to. Third, this dual revelation forms the testimony of two witnesses, as we saw in Hebrews 6.18 and is not a condescension to our sinful weakness, which is a position of some writers. Because we're sinful, we can't hear the word by itself, so God breaks through with all kinds of special things. No, that's not true. In the Garden of Eden, you had the special things. And that's, this is just that there is this dual form of revelation, bipolar. There is the word, and there is the sign, and that's the way God has set it up. In fact, I would contend that this is... Not a con condescension to our sinful weakness, but a reflex of the one and threeness of God, that God comes to us in these two ways. And the bottom line or application is this. God's revelation is distorted when preaching and sacraments are separated. When we get to it, that's where we'll sit down and focus. Now, to lead into this, <clears throat> this morning I want for us to consider together the Christian doctrine of miracles. What are miracles? What does the Bible have to teach about them? And the reason that we want to look at miracles is that the equivalent of the biblical miracles is the sacraments. The miracles were given as attesting signs and seals to the word of God. Now in our time, the sacraments are given as attesting signs and seals to the word of God. And so in order for us to understand the sacraments and what they're for and how they work, we need to look at biblical miracles and see what they were for and how they worked and what the Bible has to teach about them. Now, 
the words for miracle in the Bible, let's, let's talk a little bit about the concept of what a miracle is. There is no Hebrew or Greek word which is equivalent to the English word miracle. Instead, there are several words which are translated miracle. And that makes it hard because these different words mean different things and we have to peel back from our English translation and get a little bit into the Greek and Hebrew, which ordinarily I don't like to do. But I don't think it'll be too hard. Uh, there are, for instance, the words semion, semion, is used for miracle. Now, this word means sign, and it's usually translated sign in the Bible. And it refers not only to miraculous things, things that we think of as special and miraculous, but it also refers to ritual things like circumcision and the Lord's Supper, which, of course, is sort of the bottom line of where we're going to go with this. But right at the outset, we have to see that the same word in the Bible is used for miracles and for special ritual additions to the Word of God. We might look, for instance, just in starting this off, that the words themselves are not the most important thing for our consideration. It's the thing itself, the concept of miracle. What does the Bible mean by a miracle? There is a miracle recorded for us in 1 Kings 17, 17 to 24. And what's interesting about this passage is that it has a whole description of what we would consider a miraculous event, but none of the language of miracles is used. It's never called a miracle. Uh, it's not called a sign. It's not the, the words that we're going to look at in a minute, which are used for miracle, don't occur here, and yet clearly this is a miracle, and clearly it has the functions of one. So what we want to get before us is not just the words for miracle, but the concept of what a miracle is in the Bible and how it functions. First Kings 17, 17. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick, and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. And he said to her, Give me your son. And then he took him from her bosom and carried him to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. And he called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's life return to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, Behold, this is important, your son is alive. And then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Now, this passage describes a miracle without calling it one. It's obvious to us it's a miracle. And we can see right in the passage how the miracle functions. It functions for the woman as a testimony to the word of God. It goes along with the word of God as confirmation. And it is itself sort of a visible word. That is, when the child is brought back to life, Elijah takes the child down and says, See, your son is alive. And here is a testimony to the doctrine of the resurrection. And so, this gives us the beginning of an understanding of 
what the Bible means by a miracle. Now, let's talk for a moment about the three words that the Bible uses for miracle, or three general word ideas. They are dunamis, semion, and teros. Dunamis. Dunamis is the word we get dynamite from. And dunamis, or dynamite, means powerful. Sometimes, when miracles occur in the Bible, they are called a dunamis, or an act of power. And so what the miracle does is it shows forth God's power in a special way. Now, God's power is always displayed in everything. According to Romans 1, his eternal Godhead and his power and everything about him is clearly seen in providence. And yet in miracle, there is a special revelation of God's power, a manifestation of God's power. And in terms of the way God acts, we speak of this as a manifestation of God's control of all things. God is Lord of all things, and that means he controls all things. And he makes a special manifestation of his control in a special act of power. That's the word dunamis or dynamite. Second, the word semion is used, which we mentioned. And that's the word which means sign, and it means revelation. When a miracle occurs, it's not just a random act of God's power manifesting his control. It's also an act of God's revelation which manifests his authority. It corresponds to the law. We speak of God's sovereignty in two senses. That God is sovereign in that he controls all things, and God is sovereign as a lawgiver who tells us how to live. Same way in miracle. In the miracle, we have the control aspect in the forth putting of power, and we have the authority aspect in the fact that the miracle is always a sign. It's always a revelation of something. In this case, it was a revelation of the doctrine of resurrection, and it was a testimony to the woman. Always in miracle, you have a revelation, not just something strange, but some type of revelation of truth. And then there is a third aspect, a third word that's used, and that's the word teros, which we get the word terror from. Terrible, terrible, terrifying comes from the Greek teros. And the word teros means awe-inspiring. That is to say, the third characteristic of miracles is that it arouses fear because of the presence of God. It arouses fear because of the presence of God. Now, this is the third way in which God is sovereign. God is sovereignly present in everything that comes to pass. But when God manifests his presence in a special way and draws near, as the Bible says, now isn't that a contradiction? I mean, how do we deal with that? God is near all the time, and yet the Bible says he draws near. How can he draw near when he's near? Well, we have to say that there's a general nearness and there's a special nearness. There's a general presence and there's a special presence. It's this bipolarity. You cannot escape the fact that God comes in two ways to us. And when God makes his special presence in our midst, it arouses awe and fear. And it's terrifying in that sense, teros, and it manifests his presence. God is Lord in three ways. He is the controller, he is the authority, and he's always present. We could all say that together. God is the controller, God is the authority, and God is always present. And these three things are manifested in miracle in a special way. Miracles are powerful, they reveal, and they arouse awe because of the presence of God. Thus, a miracle is 
an extraordinary manifestation of God's covenant lordship in creation. A miracle is an extraordinary, it's something different from the usual, manifestation of God's covenant lordship in creation. It's different from the usual. Now, theologians have tried, I've not been happy with that, and that's about all that you can get from the Bible, but under the influence of various philosophies, you get different kinds of definitions of miracle. And because these float all around, and we were taught them as children, and uh, they infect our thinking, we need to look for just a few minutes about what a miracle is not. Some definitions of miracle, and I think if you looked in your average systematic theology, uh, anything written before the last 20 years or so, in other words, under the influence of Greek thought, you would find a definition of miracle, that a miracle is an exception to natural law. A miracle is an exception to natural law. Now that, unfortunately, is a deistic idea of what a miracle is. Because the Bible doesn't teach that God set up the universe and wound it up like a clock and then left it to run itself. God did not make the universe and then put laws inside of it, and now the universe runs itself. And then every now and then, God reaches in and does something special, but ordinarily, he leaves it alone. That's not the biblical teaching at all. No, what the Bible teaches is, it, is that God is always doing everything that's being done. One of the problems with the idea of natural law is that it's impersonal. But God, God's providence, is personal. It's done by the speaking of God and by his hand or by his sending persons to do his will, men or angels. And you'll notice that um, that corresponds to authority, control, and presence, and we will get to that when we discuss providence. God always does things by sending angels to do it, or by doing it himself, or by speaking it. And we say, now, why does this uh, watch <coughs> drop down to this table here? It's because the natural law of gravity, which God built into the universe from the very beginning, just automatically and impersonally drew it down. That's not so. In fact, there was an occasion in the Bible, you may remember, when a piece of iron sank down to the bottom of a lake. And so God simply made it rise back up to the lake. You want to know why this falls down? When I drop it, it's because angels pulled it down. Or maybe because angels pushed it down. Or maybe because God pulled it down himself. Or because God spoke and it happened. That's the biblical view not the modern scientific view. Modern science is wrong. There is no such thing as natural law. Now, there are such things as covenantal regularities. Fortunately for us, God isn't constantly changing the rules. God graciously always does things the same way except when he doesn't, and those are called miracles. Now, you may say this is fairly simple, but that's the whole point. It is simple. It's not sophisticated. Any child can understand it. That's the difference between Christianity and philosophy. Now, these regularities are set forth in Genesis 9 right after the flood. Genesis 8, excuse me, Genesis 8, last verse. While this earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. In other words, you can count on it. The sun will rise tomorrow or the earth will turn so as to reveal the sun over the horizon tomorrow. Let's don't get into that. Whichever way you want to put it. The sun will rise tomorrow. Now, these things are going to continue because God keeps them going. So it's God's action that keeps it going. And when God decides it's not going to happen, it won't. So one day, Hezekiah was about to die. And uh, we sing about this from time to time. 
God told Hezekiah he was going to die, and Hezekiah prayed that he would be granted an extension of life. And the sun stopped. In fact, the sun moved back up in the heavens. And so the sundial changed. You remember that. And there was another time, Joshua's long day, when God stopped the sun. God told the angels who moved the sun to stop moving it. If you want to look at it that way. I believe the angel's named Apollo, right? Whichever, whichever angel it was that moves the sun or turns the earth, they stopped for just a moment or two, for a few hours, and uh, that's all it is. These are covenantal regularities. They're administered by personal agents, either God himself or his angels. The Bible calls angels stars, so I suppose they're up there, and they control the weather. There are weather angels. The stars in their courses fought against Sisera, says Judges chapter 5, and that means that they brought this big storm that flooded the chariots at the Battle of Megiddo. The angels control the weather. Now, they always do it the same basic way. They have a dance, and they like to dance that dance, and they don't dance any other dance. So God has set up a certain, you know, a foxtrot of the clouds, and they go the same way, and the angels like to dance that way, and so they do it, and they find fulfillment in doing it the same way, and so weathermen can make predictions. But that's not because there's some impersonal natural law doing it. It's because angels keep doing it the same way. Now, every now and then, God gets mad and tells the angels to stop doing it, and we get drought, and we get uh, hail that destroys crops. God can always intervene, but when God intervenes and, it, and things are happen a little bit different from the way they usually do, then that's a, that, we say, manifests God's power, authority, and presence in a special kind of a way, and that's what a, a miracle is. But God's covenantal regularities... And I don't even like the word regularity because it comes from Latin regula, which means law. But what, where are we going to find the word? God's covenantal providence is not any more normal than a miracle. God does it either way. Either way. Now we can describe these regularities and call them laws, like energy is matter times the velocity of light squared, or some other law or formulation of the way things usually happen. And some of these so-called natural laws are not descriptions of how things happen, but are simply descriptions of how things were created. But whichever way it is, they're not impersonal, and everything that happens happens because God happens to it. Thus, a miracle is not an exception to anything in the Bible. The Bible never says a miracle is an exception. It might be only that it's an exception to our expectations. Our expectations are created by the way God usually does things. When God does something different, it crosses our expectations and we're surprised. We're arrested. Our thinking is stopped for a moment and God uh, shakes us a little bit. So the point is that God is the Lord of creation. This is displayed in providence and it's displayed in miracle, bipolar manifestation of God's revelation. Then, uh, so let's get away with, from this idea of natural law. It may be fuzzier to talk about it the way the Bible talks about it, but it's better to be fuzzy than wrong. And there's nothing wrong with having a somewhat fuzzy understanding of things. We're not God, so we'll never have a completely sharp and clear understanding of anything. It's always a little bit fuzzy. Now let's talk about another kind of a definition that you'll find. Miracle is an immediate act of God done without means. A miracle, some would say, is an immediate act of God done without means. That is to say, God doesn't use any particular means to accomplish a miracle. Uh, that is also erroneous. 
Almost always, God uses some means. The 5,000 were fed with bread and fish. Admittedly, it was just a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. But God used means. Jesus heals a blind man by spitting in the ground, forming clay, and recreating him with uh, the spirit and the clay, putting it upon his eyes. That uses means. When the locusts were brought to Egypt, it says a wind brought them. And angels are used as means and miracle all the time. Moreover, anything God does in creation employs creation in some way. Let's take an example of what you might consider almost pure miracle, done without any means, the burning bush, okay? What are some of the creation things that are involved there? Well, you've got a bush, you've got fire, you've got light waves, you've got sound waves. God uses means. John Murray says, <clears throat> A miracle cannot be performed by created forces alone. John Murray says, and I'm going to attack this statement, John Murray says, miracle cannot be performed by created forces alone. The problem with that is that nothing can be performed by created forces alone. That's as true of providence as it is of miracle. And so it's true. It's true. A miracle cannot be performed by created forces alone, but providence isn't performed by created forces alone either. God works it. God works everything that happens. And so this doesn't get us anywhere. Thus, the question of the use of means and miracles is irrelevant. Okay? So what can we say then? Miracles go along with the Word of God. We said that there is a general revelation of God in the world. That goes along with the general command of the cultural mandate. And then there is a special revelation of God in miracles and in some other things that goes along with God's special word. And that special word is sabbatical or particularly redemptive in character. God wants to manifest his special wrath, well, his wrath or his grace. This is attested by miracles. Now, just to say a little bit more about the biblical philosophy of miracles. Miracles occur in the Bible as a means of establishing the ordinary. You have a miracle, and the miracle sort of jumps everybody up to a certain stage, and then the miracles stop, and you have the ordinary at that stage. There are three great periods of miracles, the period of Moses, the period of Elijah, and the period of the New Testament, that is, Christ and the book of Acts. And you can see the miracles dwindling in the New Testament as you read along. Now, what's going on? Well, let's look at the history of it. Let's look at the Exodus. Here are the people in Egypt. They're all idolaters. We know from Joshua 24 that they worshipped strange gods when they were in Egypt. They may have cried out to the Lord, but he wasn't the only one they cried out to. So God reaches down and God does a whole bunch of really big, spectacular miracles. Ten whopping plagues. Turning a stick into an alligator. And also turning it into a snake. Two different things. If you study the book of Exodus. And then after he gets them out, he does one special miracle after another. He, they throw a tree into the water and the bitter waters become sweet. There's no way scientifically, quote-unquote, to explain that. That's just the way God worked at that particular time. And you've got all these other things. Now you get into the wilderness and you get the miracles begin to establish a period of normalcy or providence. And what is that? Well, it's something rather strange. Every day you go out and there's all this bread all over the ground. And it wasn't secreted by insects. It's just there. It's called manna, which means, what is this stuff? And you go out and gather it. 
six days a week, but on the Sabbath there isn't any bread out there. And on Friday, there's twice as much bread. Now, the first time this happens, wow, a miracle! But the thousandth time it happened, it's become providence. It's what you live with every day. It's the normal thing. After 38 years, I can assure you, they just expected the manna to be out there the next day, just like we expect the sun to rise. What started out as a miracle has become providence. It's become the normal thing. So the miracles get the people all up to a certain stage, and then the miracle becomes the providence. You see how these things blend. There's no way to separate them particularly. Now, when they get to the promised land, get another big miracle. The water stops, and they walk through, and they get in the promised land, and all the manna stops. Then you get some more miracles, like the destruction of Jericho. But gradually, these miracles stop, and God has established a covenantal order and now that it's been established and the people have been raised up out of idolatry and turned into a Christian nation, the miracles die down and they live on the basis of providence. In other words, the miracles are there as a special action, we could say, to pull everything up to a certain level, and then it continues. Now this happens again at the period of the prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Now at this point, the miracles are more for the purpose of bringing about a curse or a witness. They don't seem to establish... Most of the miracles are done in the northern kingdom. You remember Elijah and Elisha ministered in the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom never repented. It never had a revival. It never had a good king. And so the miracles there are more for the purpose of heightening the curse than they are for bringing about a blessing. But now we can look at the New Testament. We see the same thing as in the Mosaic period. All the special miracles are given to establish the situation. And then once the situation has been established, the apostles have been testified by special miraculous signs then you enter a period of normalcy and the miracles die off. Now what's interesting about that is that that has happened repeatedly in church history as well. A missionary goes into a new place that hasn't heard the gospel and God begins to work miracles through him. And the people are all amazed. They thought only Juju could do this stuff and here this guy with the black robe on and a collar has come in and he's doing all kinds of stuff, casting demons out of people driving all the snakes off the island, which is probably a symbolic way of casting demons, a symbolic uh, uh, recounting of Patrick casting demons out, so forth. I mean, you hear stories on the mission field all the time about miracles, don't you? Why don't we have them here? Because our period of miracles was 1,500 years ago when the Peregrini went to the British and Northern Europeans and brought in the gospel. And once the miracles had come, everything was established, you get a period of normalcy, and we're still in that. Uh, in a sense that when God deals with very primitive people or people in a great situation of sin, we might say he tends to use more miracles to arrest their attention. But their po the point is for them to grow up to the point where they don't need these special signs in quite the same way, and they begin to see the special sign in the sacrament because there is where the miracle is normalized. That's the, the bipolar with the preaching of the word. But this seems to be... a a way that God has done it. And uh, it's the philosophy of miracle that the Bible presents. These things are not opposed, you see. Miracle comes in, draws people into the kingdom, and, and establishes them in normalcy. Now, that's why uh, looking to miracles and wanting a faith in miracles and wanting to see miracles all the time is an inferior form of religion. As Jesus said to the Pharisees, uh, the fact that you seem to want all these special, super-duper, miraculous things indicates that you haven't grown up yet because you shouldn't need them. 
if you've grown up. Now let's finally talk a little bit about the cessation of miracles. And we just talked about it some. Let's talk about it a little bit more formally. Throughout the entire period that the Bible was being written, miracles were done to confirm and attest the verbal revelation of God. Once the Bible was finished being written, you don't need any miracles for that purpose anymore. You've got the Bible, you've got the Holy Spirit, you've got the sacraments, that's all the testimony you need. And yet we have to say that God is still able to work miracles. God does wonders for his people every day in the sense of providence. These are no less wonderful, even though they don't strike us as any as wonderful, than miracles. God answers prayer even for the sick, according to the book of James. Should these things be called miracles? Yes. They're powerful, they reveal God, and they arouse awe. There have probably been things in your life that were unexpected. And when you stopped and looked into them, you would say, well, I guess we wouldn't call that a miracle because we can see how it all worked its way out. And yet when it came to you and when it happened to you, it was quite unexpected and felt miraculous. Well, in a sense, that's what a miracle is. A miracle is a powerful, awe-inspiring revelation of God. And that still happens today. Now, let's talk, having talked about miracle, let's talk a little bit about providence, which is sort of the other side of miracle here. There are three forms of providence, what we call providence. What is God's providence? Well, that's the things that God usually does, the things that we rely on. And uh, there are three things that we say about God's providence. First of all, that providence is preservation. Second, that it's concurrence. And third, that it's government. And just very briefly, God providentially preserves the world. That is, he created it and he preserves it. In a sense, that's to say the same thing. Since God is created, we don't expect him to decreate. Uh, to decreate would be to reverse what he'd already done and would, sense, in a sense, imply that what well, he'd done something wrong, which is impossible. So there's sort of a logical error in the notion of decreation. But we can speak, though, of saying that God created the world and it stays created. And so it's preserved. Second of all, we say that God governs the world so that everything that happens happens because God ordains to bring it to pass. Nothing happens outside of his government. If men commit sin, he has ordained it to come to pass for his own reasons and for his own glory. doesn't excuse the sinner, but God will get glory from it. And in a sense, the great judgment on sin is to be allowed to commit even more sins. Now, what is the greatest judgment on sin? Well, it's to be left alone so that you keep on sinning. And uh, so there's no particular problem with God's government allowing people to continue in sin. And he does it for his own reasons and for his own glory. Preservation in government of all things, including sin, and then concurrence. Concurrence means that God works in everything that happens. Now the difficulty there comes is we have to say theologically that God even works in the sins of people. And yet he works without fault and the fault lies with the people. This is difficult to understand, but it's absolutely necessary to confess. Otherwise, God is a sovereign. 
But everything that happens in the world happens because God works it and brings it to pass. And we talked about weather angels, and you know, I'm not going to burn at the stake for what I said about angels moving the clouds around. But let's assume that that really is. If we could see everything perfectly, that's what we'd see. Well, okay, the angels are moving the clouds, but at the same time, God is at work moving the clouds. Because God is at work doing everything that's done. God keeps the electron shell around the atom. And if electrons go around protons and neutrons, which is what I was taught in school and apparently isn't quite the latest uh, hypothesis, but if that's the case, it's God who's moving it around in everything that's here and everything that's there. God works concurrently with everything that goes on. So if I drop this, it's true that God also works with that in dropping it. God is active at work in everything. God is the eternally active God. He's not passive in anything that happens. We have to confess that. Okay? Now, what about the decree of God and providence? Well, let's, let's don't talk about that. I don't think we need to get in there. Let's talk about providence and miracles because that's all we have time for and that's really where we are. Now, how does providence relate to miracle? Well, I've said that miracles establish a condition of normal providence. And in the Bible, this is true. And in the Bible, the same kinds of language is used for both miracles and providence, especially in the book of Psalms. And I think that at this point, maybe we ought to just get the Bible open, Psalm 107, and see how in the eye of the Bible, from the biblical point of view, God's wondrous works of providence and God's wondrous works of miracle are both wondrous works, and neither one has primacy over the other. Let's look at Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands, from the east and west and from the north and from the sea. Okay, then we start to talk about God's wondrous works. They wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. They did not find their way to an inhabited city. They were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distress. He gave them a straight way and led them to an inhabited city. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, for his wonders to the soul of men. That's We might think that's miracle language, and yet what's described here, no particular miracle is pointed to, and yet it's called a wonder. Then, starting in verse 10, the second stanza, There were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and shame, because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he humbled their heart with labor. They stumbled, and there was none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their bands apart. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the Son of Men. Okay, maybe there are miracles here, maybe there aren't. But the very fact is said to be wonderful, for he has shattered gates of bronze and cut bars of iron asunder. Now, uh, it goes on. And it says that when God delivers people in trouble, these are wonders. Okay? Uh, the, second the third stanza has to do with those who are hungry and sick. 
And the fourth stanza has to do with those who were distressed on the sea. Now, we could say, you know, if a bunch of sailors are distressed on the sea and they cry out to the Lord and then they row real hard and they manage to make it to land, there's no particular miracle involved in that in the sense in which we commonly think of miracle, and yet that's spoken of as a wonder. But then you get into real, what we think of as real miracles in verse 33. He changes rivers into a wilderness and springs of water into a thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who dwell in it. He changes wilderness into a pool of water and dry land into springs of water. He makes the hungry to dwell there and so forth. All of these things which they might happen real fast or they might happen over a period of time and we would think of them as normal, all of them are said to be wonders. Similarly, in Psalm 136, all the wonders here give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy is everlasting. And then there are all these things listed that we would praise God for. And some of them are miracles, and some of them are what we call providence. But they are all wonders and special manifestations of God's concern. In Psalm 145, and this is just, I mean, we don't have time to read all these, I guess, but just to take them down, the wonders that are spoken of, and this is miracle language, Pele, wonders, are God's providential concern for all things. <coughs> now, the point of all of this is to say that the language that's used for miracles in the Old Testament is also used for providential types of things. For instance, in Proverbs 30, verse 18, there are three things too wonderful for me. The word wonder there is your word for miracle which I don't understand, the way of an eagle in the sky, of a serpent on a rock, of a ship in the middle of the sea, and of a way with a ma- the way of a man with a maid. Okay. Now, the implication of that is, again, and we just keep reiterating this because it's so important, there's no sharp distinction between miracle and providence in the Bible. The distinction is one of the degree of extraordinary, extraordinariness. The degree of extraordinariness. Some things are a little bit extraordinary, and some things are really extraordinary, like turning a whole river into blood. That's real extraordinary. And yet, uh, other things which are a lot less extraordinary are also uh, every bit as much God's work. Having said that, then, does that mean there's no distinction? No, obviously there is a distinction. And so what is the distinction? Well, this is what I would say. Miracles are more suited to announce great events in redemptive history. That is, miracles have shock value. Okay? What's the function of miracles? Miracles have shock value. And they're tied to redemption. We ought not to need miracles. We should be able to see God as clearly in providences. Providence is sufficient as evidence to ground faith in God. Paul tells the Athenians that they know it. Uh, and also in Acts 14. That was Acts 17, but in Acts 14, 15 to 17, Men, why are you doing these things? We're also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth with sea and all that is in them. And in generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go in their ways, but he did not leave himself without witness and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So there's a sense in which people should clearly see without miracles, and yet they don't. 
And so miracles break through the suppression of the witness of providence and give a special manifestation of God. Men naturally suppress the truth, and so miracle breaks through. Now, what happens in the Bible when you have a whole lot of miracles? Well, men begin to suppress the miracles. That's the amazing thing about the Jews coming out of Egypt. You think with all the miracles they'd seen, I mean, they saw this river turn to blood. They saw frogs. They saw darkness, palpable darkness for three nights. They saw the Red Sea divide in half. And there was water, a wall of water on both sides. They saw that that happened when Moses said so. Then they went through, and then when Moses said so, the waters came back together again. They saw one miracle after another, and yet they didn't repent. Notice they began to take the miracles for granted. And so the role of the miracle is to break through the suppression of man's, uh, man's suppression of the truth, and yet even there, because of man's depravity, it doesn't always work. In summary, then, providence and miracle both demonstrate God's sovereign lordship in history, one in what we would call an unexceptional way, the other in an exceptional way. Providence is closely tied, looking back at our chart, with the cultural mandate. In order for us to fulfill the cultural mandate, we need these covenantal regularities. If we can't count on gravity working the same way every day, uh, if, it, if all the rules keep changing, then we would never be able to take dominion. But God keeps these things going the same way. And thus, the act, the scientific enterprise, this is the cash value of this, is an act of faith. A scientist, in order to investigate anything, or to do anything, or to put two pieces of metal together and have them stick because of magnetism, in order for any of that work to work, he has to trust that God will keep things going the same way. So it's an act of faith. Now, most scientists cheat and don't admit that. And they invent things like natural law to suppress the truth that God causes these things to happen. But the scientific enterprise... The whole cultural mandate enterprise is an act of faith in God's providence. It's grounded in faith in God's providence. The works cannot take place except on the foundation of faith in God's providence. Miracle, on the other hand, even though it shades into providence, is tied more particularly with redemption and is a sign of, in the Bible, always a sign of the Sabbath and of man's attainment of the Sabbath through the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.